this is this is this is this is hidden gem. This is hidden gem. This is hidden gem. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, cool, cool. How's your day going, man? Oh, man, it's been relaxed, man. It's been relaxed, you know. I've been just uh, staying in the present, you know, you know what I mean? There you go, man. That's the best way to do it. <laughs> uh, first thing before we start, man, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this this whole series this season, man. It means a lot to me. It's an honor to have you on here tonight, so thank you. Oh, absolutely, man. Thank you. Thank you. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, I was looking at, you You know, it looked like you did a lot of, did a lot of research. That's kind of, that's kind of crazy. You know, I was like, man, this, this, this cat got me digging in my own crates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I try to do the best I can. You know, I got a lot of people I hit up and uh, try to do a little reading on my end, make sure I got everybody represented the respect. best way I can, you know, so yeah. Respect, um, so yeah. Respect. If you got me, uh, episode 43, you guys, uh, we got the legendary Sub-Z, Terrence Nichols in the build Nicholson in the building. Um, we're going to start, I believe our story starts, the story starts on Martin Luther King Jr. on Anacostia, is that correct? So really, it's, it, it started on Stanton Road, Southeast, which is not too far from, um, from MLK, you know, uh, I was, I was, uh, Actually, even before that, over I, I've sort of come full circle because I live on um, I live off Alabama Avenue, n around near Buena Vista Terrace. And I was a baby, I was there. We and then uh, we were over on Stanton Road for a while, <clears throat> and then uh, me and my mother came over to uh, right at the end of Martin Luther King Avenue. It's a it's a it's a it's a apartments called Wingate on Galveston Street and the Martin Luther King. And uh, so that's really where I had my formative years. That's really where I grew up. Okay. You know, and then, uh, but as, as you know, you get older, you know, you, you, you rip and run and stuff like that. So uh, no, you can blindfold me and I can find my way around the Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so where does the hip hop uh, aspect come into your life is it around those years? So um, I have a dear friend go by the name of Sean James, and he, uh, so I would say around uh, in the early 80s, early 80s, like 82 or something like that, this guy was coming to, uh, to our neighborhood to visit his aunt. He was from, he was from Brooklyn. And uh, me and him became friends. He, you know, I really took to him like a, he, you know, I took to him like he was a big brother, you know. And uh, one summer, he was come down for the summers. And one summer, he came down with a, with a, you know, he used to have tapes. He used to have this big box, you know, it's the 80s. So he had this big box. And uh, he was playing uh, T. La Rock, It's Yours, mm. right now. Now, at the time... You know, at the time in D.C., our, our, you know, for the most part, a lot of people just got hip hop from off the radio. And that was Rapper's Delight, the Rapping Duke, you know, uh, Double Dutch Bust, this kind of stuff. But when he 
uh, hit me to uh, it's yours. And I always I always uh, specify this because on that single, on one side you had just like the studio mix, but on the other side you had what was called a Def Party Jam mix where he had the crowd, where Tila Rock had the crowd, right? And man, I heard that, and it just it just took me it just took me somewhere, you know what I'm saying? It just it just made me travel, right? And uh and I was about 15 at the time. And when I heard that, I was like, I want to rap. I want to write, you know. And and um and so Sean would, whenever when he would go back home to New York, he would send me down. He would send me mixtapes back then, you know, like, you know, like just a DJ. Like he would just send me tapes with all, you know. And um, so between that and going to the, you know, going to the record store and really starting to seek stuff out, um, I started patterning my, you know, Tila Rock. In the landscape of rappers at that time, you're talking about like Tila Rocket, so it's like pre LL Cool J, I need a beat. But post uh, you know, uh Grandmaster Flash and you know, Sugar Hill Gang, if you know, and all that stuff. So his wordplay was different for that in that in that in that time, and that really struck me, you know, that really struck me what he was, you know, and his uh his his cadence and his his, his the timbre of his voice and his delivery. So he was one of the first MCs I really kind of patterned myself after. But then, in terms of writing, you know, and then uh, and then when LL came out with "I Need a Beat," it was like, "Whoa, what is this?" You know. So you know, so these were these were really. It's kind of it's kind of interesting, to me anyway, because you're talking about I grew up in D.C. Uh, at a time when Go-Go was just as powerful, punk was just as powerful, and here's this, and, and, and hip-hop's coming, and we kind of getting stuff how we can get it. I'm, you know, now that, now that my ears was tuned to it, I'm looking for it, you know. So, um, so yeah, so those were like sort of my early kind of like, oh yeah, I want to do this, you know. Okay. You know, this is 80, so by this time we're talking about 84, you know, Frank Ski uh, is another important figure in DC hip hop at that time, Frank Ski, DJ Frank Ski, was um, on uh, UDC, University of District of Columbia had a radio station, uh, WDCU. And on Saturday evenings, Frank Ski and Larry G would come on and they were really like the voice of the hip hop scene in DC, the DMV area for real. Uh, and so I would tune into that, you know, and, and just kind of like get my weekly fix and just, you know, write, you know, I was writing, I was just writing as best I, I just, you know, I took to writing is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in those early years, like, I know, like, you're also a huge, huge advocate for painting and sculpting. Did that come later down the pipeline? And were you already doing the artistry as well on that side, growing up at a young age, too? Mm. So I was making art, but I wasn't really looking at it as a, career you know what i mean until 11th well, no, 12th grade 12th grade man 12th grade came and you know in high school i went to carroll high school it was all boys at the time now and I, i'll get back to how me and kokai uh mm -hmm. thing but um carroll you know in high school in 12th grade around april 
of your 12th grade year, most people have an idea of where they're going to be going to college. I didn't. I had no idea. You know, I was, I was kind of, especially 12th grade, I was kind of ripping and running a little bit. I was kind of like there was a lot of little things in the street that was kind of attractive to me. But I knew I wanted to graduate high school. But my art teacher, he pulled me to the side and was like, um, you know, asked me what, what, what was my plans. And I, I, I didn't really know. And he said, you know, you should go to art school. And so he basically, my art teacher single-handedly really uh, walked uh, me through the process of getting my portfolio together. And this is pre-internet, right? So he's giving me a letter. He said, take that down to the Corcoran and give it to the dean. He knew the dean. And then along with my portfolio, right? So I give her that, give her the letter. She type a letter, say, get that back to your art teacher. And then he um, got me excused from my classes for a week. And all I would do was come to his class all day long and just do what he told me to do, draw, paint, whatever he told me. And so then I took that portfolio and went back down to Corcoran. And uh, she said, uh, then she gave me a letter that I could open, right? She, she says, uh, so she said, uh, you, you know, they paid for me to come for drawing and painting classes for that summer. Of, and, and, and if I got a C, then I was accepted. So, so I got in the arts, I got into college. I never took an SAT. I never took a PSAT as far as I can remember, you know, but I don't think you can do that nowadays. But I really uh, got special, you know, love and respect for my art teacher, Mr. Robert Hunter. I don't know if he's around, if he's alive, or if he gets to see this podcast, but he, he really was instrumental in helping me find some direction at a time when it's like I had one foot in school really and another foot in the street for real. Mm. So that was important. So the art thing, yeah. So the art thing was, was key um, in, in terms of giving me an outlet. I was already creative, but for someone to really kind of see that I had some, some talent, you know, cause most of the people I went to Corcoran with came out of Duke. A lot of them or came from, you know, other art, you know, other schools from uh, Peace Rock Creek Lee, uh, 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 from uh, places like, uh, you know, New Jersey, different places. So I felt I felt sort of like an oddball coming from an all boys Catholic school, going to art school. But uh, but God is good. Everything worked out. That's awesome. man. <clears throat> since, you, since we're already talking about the Corcoran uh, Art School 91, I feel like, you know, I've heard from many sources that like that was a really big. Uh, change of point for you artistically at least like they said a couple things happen like in terms of, like shifting mediums and like trying different art forms so what what happened in 91 around this oh man you my man all, all right so 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 here's what happened well 91 was interesting because I was um really in a classroom with mostly painters you know, like, I mean, uh, Corcoran at that time, you're talking about the entire student body didn't even top 300. So the fine arts department, it was like, I think maybe 30 of us and two thirds or maybe even three quarters of, of that was um, was painters. You know what I mean? And so I thought I was trying to I was it was like I was in a dog pound, but I was a cat. You know what I'm saying? So. Yeah. What happened around 90, really 89, we started doing these projects where we would, they were more like sculptural kind of things and assembling things. And, 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 and when I got hit to that, uh, again, 
uh, big shout to uh, Professor John Dixon and Kendall Buster, my, my teachers at, at Corcoran. They saw that I was getting, they saw, like, they saw it even maybe before I saw it. They was like, you on to something, you know what I mean? Like, run with that. And so, so it, at that time, I really started uh, working with um, metal. I started welding and started really building stuff. And, um, and it took a lot of the pressure really off of me to feel like I needed to be a great painter. I would paint, but even my relationship with paint was different than, say, you know, some of my classmates that was like, you know, vicious, vicious oil painters. I like paint. I don't necessarily like to render things super realistically. I can do that, but that's not what my passion was. So I found that, like, I'm really a person that likes material. I like, I'm big, and this is really across the board when I think of it, man. Like, I'm big on process. Like, the process of getting from your idea to what is manifest in the flesh, whether that's the written word, whether that's a kung fu technique, whether that's a piece of art. I'm deep, I'm big on, I'm big on the process, the, the trial and the failure, you know, the parts where everybody, you know, where you're not looking so good, you know what I'm saying? Like, like that part, you know, like it's, it's cool when you do a dope piece and everybody love it, but what about all the bad pieces you had to go through to get to that piece? Like, that's where I like to live, you know, instead of just like, everybody gonna give you dap if it's dope, but I want to it's a learn. It's, it's 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 about self. It's about learning about yourself. You know that fear. I get a good idea and I get fearful because can I pull this off? You know, and then that piece of, you know, I got a great idea. I don't know how I'm gonna pull it off to like, check me in a month and it's like I got the bull by the horns. I got it. You know what I mean? Like that that takes courage. The uh, absence of fear. Courage means taking action in the face of fear. You know, I done went way off track, bro. My bad. No, 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 no. This is what the podcast is about, man. This is what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I think I think process is so important, man. I think what you said right there, like, that's like some life lesson stuff right there for everybody. So, yeah. For me to ask you, the name Sub-Z, is it... As simple as a like, Mortal Kombat, is there like a deeper meaning? To, I felt I felt there's a deeper meaning to the name, and you know, were you always Sub Z, or, or what was all the history with the name? Yeah, that's a good question. So, no, at first, I went by the name of T Slice. My man Sean, who I told you about, who hit me to uh, hip hop in the first place, he gave me that name, and I wore mm. it proudly. You know, my first, my first, my first rap crew was called Dynamically Fresh. And uh, it was it was uh, this cat called a USMC. He was from LA. The Mighty Rock Box was a was a human beatbox because that was big at the time. And I was T Slice, and I and I and I and I sort of held that for a while. But then I got a little older, and uh, in uh, the early '90s, I started going by calling myself Tim Buck. And I used to call myself that because I was uh, <laughs> somebody put T Slice down there. I was calling myself Tim Buck because I was reading a lot. I got like. I call that sort of like my enlightenment time because um, in 1991, uh, I, I walked out, I, I, I got away from the streets and, uh, and I did st I started moving different and I started reading different stuff and stuff. So I started kind of getting into that thing around 94 or so. Yeah. Now, initially I called myself Sub-Zero and it was directly related to Mortal Kombat because I was playing it a lot. 
But then I started asking myself, like, you know, because I started feeling like it was kind of corny. And um, and I was like, well, what is it about that character? Why wouldn't I have called myself, you know, Scorpion or Raiden or whatever? And, and what it came down to is, like, that energy of him is like, you know, I'm like a smooth assassin. I'm like a cool assassin. I'm not hyped up. You know, when it's come when when I'm when I'm when I'm, you know, performing or rhyming or writing or my delivery has never really been I tried to be like, you know, extra. That's not me. My thing is precise. I mean I try. I'm saying this is my goal. Is you know, I like to be relaxed, precise, like a you know, like a like a cool, cold assassin with it, like a swordsman with it, you know. So 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 then I so then that's what I just said, you know. I'm going to just, you know, I kind of kept it. Uh, and, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, I could have called myself, you know, Play-Doh. You know, it wouldn't have, to me, it wouldn't have. What's really important to me and what's always been important to me is the quality of whatever it is that I'm producing, whether it's lyrics, whether it's a piece of art. Whether, you know, I'm big on, I'm big on being the best I can try to be. You know what I'm saying? So. So it so so like you know I felt like yeah I felt like you know Subzi kind of embodied like my mindset when I'm when you hand me a microphone you know mm -hmm. that's really so I haven't changed you know I mean I so much time is under the so much uh, water's under the bridge now it don't make no sense to change it to nothing else I mean I'll be dead. <laughs> <in a minute. laughs> <laughs> um, you had a this 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 is a story. Um, obviously this is a, a question of mine. Um, you worked with the jazz, some jazz people, Steve Coleman and Omar Sosa. Um, how did how did that whole connection come about? I mean, because you were you consider yourself an improv improvisational uh, MC. So like, so what was the whole story behind that? Uh, okay, so um, first first off on this one, I gotta give big shouts to my brother Kokai and Black Indian. Those are my role brothers. They always gonna, we always gonna, you know, in my heart gonna be my brothers. We live things on the road. Um, and it really started uh, in 94 and with uh, Tony Blackman, mm -hmm. uh, the founder of the Freestyle Union. Um, she founded Freestyle Union in DC. Kokai, Priest, uh, Black Indian, Storm the Unpredictable, uh, uh, Amphibians, uh, and and myself were, were members of the Freestyle Union. And we would meet regular and really um, hone our craft as as freestylers. You know what I mean? We really were, I mean, we were, we were dead serious, dead serious about it. My, my good brother, Ezra Grez, bass player, uh, he introduced me and Kokai to Steve Coleman. Side, you know, footnote, me and Kokai have known known each other since elementary school. We went to elementary school together and then we ran back on each other in high school, then we didn't see each other for a while. And then there was a um there was a uh a, 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 a rap contest up at the Gala Theater in uh ninety four and me and him wind up battling, ran into him again. And I was telling him, like, you know, Coke, man, we just did this thing called Freestyle Union, just founded it, man, you got to get hip to it. So he started coming. So 
it was like in 1994, all these things aligned like stars, you know what I'm saying? And so Ezra introduced me and Kokai to Steve Coleman and was like, yeah, I just met this cat in, 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 uh, in New York who is, you know, he's looking for some improvisational lyricists. I want to drive. So he, I'm going to take y'all up. And well, he sent us a tape. So dude, he liked this. So we came up to New York to record. It's crazy because so me and Kokai come up to New York to Systems 2 studio. Black Thought comes who I had just met. This is when this was pre Do You Want More. It was their first album, Organics, right? And he had just performed at Howard at the hip hop convention. And so here it is. Is it, the album was called A Tale of Three Cities. They called it that because it was D.C., Philadelphia, and New York. And so there was um, Air Smooth, Andre the Great One, and Black Thought from Philly, and Utasi and Shalik from New York, and me and Kokai from D.C. So look, look, we come up in the studio, we like, me and Coke is like, Ezra had us like on a leash. We was like, let's go. Cause we already figured that they don't think we gonna go, we gonna go like that, right? So we got up in there, we was we was bananas up in there, right? And then we look back, and then Steve was like, "Oh yeah, we want, I want to take y'all on the road with me." So it was like this, 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 this. He was like, "You gotta get a passport," and and boom, before you know it, we went from being in the cipher to being on tour in Europe. The summer of '94, we started meeting. Now we on we. This is that. This is a year. This is a time when you got a lot of um, the jazz and hip hop thing with a lot of different things. Cause you had Greg Osby with the cat from double X posse. You had Branford Marcellus and his thing. You had guru with the uh, jazz Mataz. So you had a bunch of stuff, right? And so, 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 so our thing was our thing with Steve, right? And, um, and so, and so, and we, you know, we end up getting, uh, we end up getting uh, introduced to all these new relationships with like established jazz cats, jazz legends. And I ain't gonna lie to you, when we were first on the road, a lot of these guys, I didn't know how significant they were. You know what I mean? Like sitting next to Horace Silver. And I'm like, I mean, I heard about, it, you know what I mean? Cause I was so steeped into the hip hop thing. We started touring with Steve. We went out to California in 95 to do the Stanford Jazz Workshop. So now we hanging around in the Palo Alto and, and in the Bay Area. And and um, I don't know if you remember this show called Real World. Um, oh, yeah. Back then it was yeah. This, yeah, so it was this dude, Muhammad, Muhammad Bilal. Uh, he had a venue called the New Upper Room in Oakland. And so we met him and we all just became cool. And they introduced, it was like we went to some spot, I can't think of the name of that spot. Uh, in Oakland, but we met Omar because Omar was living in Oakland at the time. Omar Sosa was in Oakland at the time, so he was like, "Man, why don't y'all come in, man? Sit in with me, man." He, he, Omar is the coolest ever. So me and Coke sat in with him, and then flash forward a few later, a few years later, and into 2000, and Willpower, who was the MC with Omar Sosa's thing, he started getting more into the theater. Cause he's a playwright. So Omar called a willpower called Kokai for the gig. He was like, Omar getting ready to go on the road and I can't do the gig. Can you take the tour? But Kokai just had 
his first, he just got married and just had his first child. So Coke threw me the gig. That's a, that was a blessing. I, I think about that now, man. I think about that now and I'm like, I'm not as grateful as I should have been at the time that he would do something like that for me. You know what I'm saying? That's a, that was a real true brother move. Like, cause, cause I, cause when I had a kid and he was out on the road, I was like, man, I was like, man, I want to try to be on the road, man. You know? So he threw, and that turned into me being on the road with Omar for a couple years, for a couple years. But by this time, also Opus had had you know, because Opus started in '97. Okay. So 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 between '94 and like 2003, I was I was I was you know, out of the country more than I was in the country. <laughs> in one That's in one wild. musical arrangement or another, you know what I mean. You get out there, you do your thing, you meet people. Here's some cat from Norway who was like, you know, I like what you're doing. You know, could you do something with us? And I'm like, you know, I, yeah, I ain't got no family. I ain't got no kids. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah, I'm out there. You know what I'm saying? So it was, it was very, uh, yeah, I, I wore that passport book out, boy. You hear me? That passport, that passport book was, was worn out, man. Look, <laughs> the, 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 the pictures on the joint was all peeling back, you know what I'm saying? And the people at customs, I was like, man, y'all messing up my passport, man. They could, they, you know, I ran through two books. I ran through two books. You still have those books for like memory sake? You still have those books? Are they long gone? Listen, my man, listen, my man Raphael 767, my man Face, he's on here. Check this out. The second time I went to get my other passport book, I hope I'm not blowing his spot. But he was working at the passport office, right? And I have to look, and he was at the window, right? And I say, man, I got to get a new passport. And and I said, can I keep the old book? Because I think usually he's supposed to give it up, man. He, that my man, that's my main man for that. He let me keep the old book, and he processed my stuff. Man, face always be my man for that move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept it, but now I let you know. I had a family man. I let the junk expire. But I'm about to go on the road in the summer, so I got to get my stuff together. I got to get wow. my stuff back because I think it take longer to get it now. But I got to get. I should let it lapse, man. But you know, life come at you. You, know, you get sidetracked. Man. Yeah. <laughs> you got a little bit sidetracked. So you um wow hey that, that 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 was a beautiful story by the way man it's a lot of love a lot of love in that story man a lot of love um I guess we brothers man yeah so going into that I mean, a little a little bit a little more deeper context like from from your I blackened and talked about the story from from his point of view on the last episode. But what's your fondest yeah. memory of how that all came to fruition and how the group came to be with you three? You talking about Opus? Yeah, Opus, yeah. Yeah. So so we had Kokai and I had done uh after the first tour with uh with, with Air Smooth, Andrea the Great One, Utasi, Shalik, and me and Coke. After that tour was over the tour manager came over to me and Coke and was like, what y'all going to be doing, you know, in the fall? And I was like, what you doing? And they said, you know, y'all y'all trying to come back out? I was like, yeah. And then Steve said, y'all got anybody else down there in D.C.? And me and Cole was like, and me and Coke was like, black, what? And Steve drove down. We told him when the Freestyle Union Cyphers was. And one day Steve drove down from Allentown to the cipher so he could see he ain't let nobody know. Nobody said nothing. He, you know, he ain't let no, he wasn't like that. 
and he he came in that joint and was looking and and and, and then every, and we kind of nudged nudged him a little bit. I was like, "That's black right there. That's Josh." You know what I'm saying? And 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 and, and at that time, you know, I mean, now, I'm gonna tell you, man. Like, I be, you know, I don't, I don't want to make him. I don't want to sound crazy or nothing like that. But so, like, I don't have no siblings. Okay. So black Indian is like my little brother. Like I really, I got I got I love him. I love him. Like he's like my little brother. I love him. You know what I'm saying? I loved him from the first time I met him. You know what I mean? And so, and so like, uh, so, so to me, I was lobbying. I was like, no, nah, you got to have black. Cause, cause he going to say, who knows what he getting ready to say. You know what I mean? We don't know what he getting ready to do. Plus he just had a different, his, he, me and Kokai had a certain kind of, we had our we had sort of like almost like a elder statesman kind of an energy, you know, like we had been doing it a long time, you know, we you know, and black had a certain he's got a charisma that you can't learn that. You can't teach that. Black Indian has something you can't teach. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so yeah. when we perform whatever Kokai and I may have lacked in charisma, oh, he paid it out in spades. So as a unit, we were like trapeze artists. You know, you let him go and you know that your man going to catch you. You know what I'm saying? And so that's how our energy as a collective was. So when all three of us went on the road, Steve let go of everybody else and was like, them three. And it got so crazy that we was, listen, man, and I don't know if Black told you this, but one time we were walking down the street in Paris. Right, B.I. was the ODB of Opus, right. <laughs> one time we were walking down the street in Paris, man, in between like uh interview or something like that. And some random dude was like, yeah, that's them Opus dudes. They whack. Look, I almost started hyperventilating. We ain't know whether to jump them or to battle them, right? And we just tag. We were like piranhas on this poor dude, man. And then after that, he was like, "Whoa, whoa! I was just, I was just messing with y'all." Like I was like, we was like, "Oh, slam, slam!" You, I mean, you know, you know, you crazy. You what is, what is you doing? You don't know what. So, um, no. Nah, so, 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 so the opus, and I will mention this too, because this is an important fact, is that when we did the first album, uh, Art of War. The musicians on that album, like Kokai and I did a lot of the work in terms of sampling and putting together stuff. But then it was, you know, we were also, we had been around so many musicians that we incorporated the live musician piece too. But that album really was before we were a band, you know, like traveling and as playing as opus. And so they were like hired musicians. So when we got back to DC, we had a couple situations going. We had the Freestyle Union Band that was playing at State of the Union and stuff. Tony was the uh, Peace Troy. Tony was the uh, leader of that band. Tony, uh, Kokai, myself, and Rub from um, uh, 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 Randy, right? And Priest, I feel like Priest used to be be doing stuff too. So. And we had a live band, which was Ezra Greer on bass. We had, I, I think we had, we had my man Jay on drums. I was running samples with my ASR 10 and rhyming to. And, and, and so we were already experimenting with this instruments and samples thing. 
it wasn't like we invented anything, but it just this was this felt it didn't feel un, it felt natural to, to rock that way. So by the time Opus formed and we started playing, it was like this was our arrangement: a sampler, live drums, DJ, you know, just a whole you know bass player, guitar. You know, we had all these elements. And, uh, you know, people was like, yeah, they like the roots. We was like, we ain't the roots. I'm trying to tell you, we're not the roots. Love the roots, we're not the roots. You know what I mean? Um, and so by the time we did the second album, which was uh, Raw Life, this album was more of a representation of Opus because by this time we had been touring, we had been doing gigs. We, didn't, we wanted to really get some traction in the States. That was really kind of just like New York. You know, in DC, uh, DM, you know, DMV and stuff. Um, but we had got our road chops. We had got our, you know, what I'm saying we was like we we had road chops. You know, what I mean, we were road dogs. So so we could play anywhere. Um, and that really that second album I think really defines the sound. But like the 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 um the dynamic of the three of us specifically, how we could how. We, we we performed together so much that we were just seamless and and being able to pass from one guy to the next. We didn't plan it. We never we never planned it. We got that at Freestyle Union. We could do stuff and just not plan it. You know what I'm saying? Like we could go from a song we wrote seamlessly into a whole five minute freestyle stuff, and people think we wrote that. We ain't write that. I talk too much, bro. Listen, I don't. If you tell look, if the rapper me to go too far tell me i i'll, I'll shut it down you know no nah, man you don't gotta shut down hey this i want you to keep talking. talking hey man i love it i love it i love it personally so <laughs> um, i'll be talking to my uncle and i start wrapping him up he'd be like this all right buddy, come home come on in for a landing buddy i'll be like all right all right all right, all right. <laughs> um let's go back a little bit in time um i feel like uh 1994 um, I feel like that, that's another big year for you uh, in terms of, like, your love and passion for Kung Fu and Tai Chi. So, I know, what, what is that all stem from as well? So everything's connected, bro. So yep. when we won the first tour with Steve, right, when we won the first tour with Steve Coleman that summer, on the tour bus, he this is VCR days, right? So on the tour bus, he had all these VCR tapes Shaolin Temple One, uh, Once Upon a Time in China, all the Jet Li joints. And so we would be like, say, driving from France to Milan or something like that. And in the back, just, um, you know, looking at looking at these movies. And I really just said to myself, as soon as we get back to D.C., I'm going to put my I'm going to drop my luggage and I'm going to walk down to Chinatown. And I'm gonna I'm gonna learn kung fu. That's really what happened. And so I went down there just like I planned it, cause I'm crazy, man. I, I when I get fixed on something, when I get fixed on it, I'm fixed on it. And yeah. so I, I literally and I play it out just like how I thought it out, right? I dropped my bag, I ain't unpacked, and I went down there, and uh, went down to the school. By this time in the mid '90s, there weren't as many kung fu schools in Chinatown. weren't hardly none. And I see the little gift shop kung fu spot i go in there and i see a small you know small sort of stocky asian man and i said i want to learn kung fu 
And he said, come back tomorrow at 7.30. Be on time. I was like, okay. I came back the next day. I was on time. And uh, I started training. And that changed my life. I can't really tell you that I expected it to really stick. But for some reason, I mean, I've always liked physical activities, but I wasn't a weightlifting guy. I wasn't really a, a, a runner kind of a guy. And, and uh, But I knew I, I was like, you know, I was like 26. I wanted to be fit. And um, that kind of gave me, uh, one, um, it gave me an outlet for um, my anger. Because at that time, I also had some anger issues. I had some rage stuff. And this was giving me an outlet. You know, I wasn't drinking and getting high no more. By 94, by 94, I hadn't, uh, I stopped drinking and smoking and getting high and all that in 91. So by 94, I'm sober and clean, but I still got anger issues and stuff like this. And so what Kung Fu was doing was giving it a channel, right? And it was helping to change my temperament. Because when I was training, I'd be tired. I don't want no trouble. I don't know who he's looking at, but I ain't worried about it. No problem. You know what I mean? It was like, no problem. You know, when I first started training, though, oh, I couldn't wait to fight. When I first started training, I was like, I can't wait to fight. Who want this wreck? And I fought six dudes. I should have ran. You know, six dudes out in front of my apartment because my mind started, you know, Slim, you from Martin Luther King Avenue. And you know Kung Fu? I know you ain't going to let these six bammers, you know what I mean? Like, that'll get you killed, especially now. But back then, I was like, you know, they go my man dial tone. Listen, Team Demo, y'all watch out. Something getting ready to happen. Watch. Anyway, um, um, so, so, uh, so yeah, so I didn't expect it to stick. I stuck with, with, uh, with Grandmaster uh, Chow Chi with C.C. Liu in Chinatown for 10 years. And in 2004, he told me it was time for me to teach. And I was like, okay. So then I, I wound up like I didn't have no students, but the universe is interesting. He told me it's time for you to teach. And I was like, okay. And then right around that time, Asheru, who was the director of the arts department at Rock Creek Academy, was like, you know, like, he pulled me in as a as a as a as a substitute teacher, and I walked into the, on a tour of the school, and I saw a room with a heavy bag in it, and I said, "Well, what are they doing in there?" And he was like, "Well, we was gonna have a martial arts teacher, but that didn't work out." I was like, "Slim, I'm your martial arts teacher," and so wow. and so he was in Asheru. Big shout to Gabe Ben. Asheru was instrumental in getting my foot in the door, where I was learning how to teach these youngins. Tai Chi and Kung Fu to help them. You know what I'm saying? And um, and so that was the answer. Sifu said, you need to teach. And when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. And when the teacher's ready, I guess the students appear. And that's what happened. Around the same time, he was about to retire. And, and then, then that's when I started looking for another teacher with his permission. And that's when I started, uh, when I kowtowed to Grandmaster uh, Shaoling Liu, who's my, who's my, uh, still my, my teacher to this day. Wow, man. I did not know about the Asheru part, man. That is, that is crazy. It, just like you said, man, it's all connected. It's, the yeah. arts department at Rock Creek Academy during the years of 2004 and 2008 
was like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You had Asheru, you had Haran Gibran, you had Omar Retinu, you had uh, Zoe. You know, I'm talking about the arts, the music department. It was like them kids, kids that DC public schools didn't want to be bothered with. They came to us and they was good. I had my little clan. It was like it was like the Shaolin Temple, like different chambers. I had my little my little flock of kung fu kids. Ashru had his you know cool stuff. Uh, 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 Omar was teaching youngest how to play guitar. Man, it was sick, young. And then, but money, you know, yeah, it got it got it got messed up, man. It got messed up. But those were some beautiful years. Uh, and I still see some of them youngins now, man. And uh, and uh, and it's beautiful to to know that like. You know, you could share some stuff with them, and then you see them now when they like thirty. You know, and Jay, right? And my man uh, Jay Coleman, he was the art teacher. Man, I'm telling you, the arts department at Rock Creek Academy was there was art departments in other schools that weren't like you know like just regular schools that could that wasn't messing with us. I mean, how you gonna have how you gonna have a, a, a computer science teacher by day, and then by night he down. Cafe Nima just burning up the mic. It was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. Oof. It was crazy. I, I'm listen, man. I'm rich. I'm rich, Joe. I'm rich in things money can't buy. You know what I mean? Like with that kind of stuff. With them kind of people around you, you 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 end up is like you rich. Yep. I Coyote, right? Steve, right? I Coyote. He was he was in there teaching math by day, and then like going to Amsterdam and wherever else he's going. And, to, and burning up microphones at night. It was ridiculous. You kind of um, you kind of touched on working with the youth. Um, I feel another really big part of that uh, was you working with the U.S. State Department for, through the government program, I believe, in 2005-2006. Yes. What was your experience yeah, like working right. with kids in different cultures, like overseas and Asia and the Middle East? Can you tell us about that experience as well? Yeah, I can tell you. Um, well, first of all, um, what I was attempting to do was uh, I was attempting to do this thing called Where in the World is Nicholson, right? Where, um, like pen pals, right? So what I was trying to do while I was gone, and I had a substitute covering my class for a month, and while I was gone, what I was trying to do was get, like, I set up an email account for my kids, Right? And the idea was, is when we go, the first year we went in 05, 06, we went to the Middle East. And so the idea was, is I meet kids over there, get their email address and shoot videos and stuff and start an exchange, you know. With So some of these kids that maybe don't have that much exposure to other stuff will start, you know, being able to talk to kids from, you know, uh, Israel and, and, and Palestine and, and, and Saudi Arabia and stuff and Bahrain. That was my goal. But what happened, what I found out was that we had freedoms that a lot of these kids just simply didn't have. So I'm exchanging emails and stuff like that and then checking, checking, checking back in at school like with some of my kids and they like, ain't nobody hitting me and we sending emails, they ain't getting them back. And then that's why I stopped realizing that they don't have the freedom. Like a lot of those places just didn't have that kind of freedom to be communicating back and forth like that, right? But the other thing I found out was that 
we definitely, and, and we didn't have this attitude anyway, right? Where we came over there like this is a real cultural exchange. Now, when you're dealing with the State Department, there's like two kind of a, we've discovered there's really two exchanges. There's the cultural exchange by daytime, right? People taking pictures, here's the ambassador, you know, shaking hands, the flag, this, that, and the other. But then it's the cultural exchange at night where, you know, you, you lean over to Slim and be like, man, where is it really popping at? You know what I'm saying? And he say, oh, you, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, show us what, and then we was going to where, the, where they was, you know what I'm saying? Like, they ain't need no help from no cats, no Yankees about how to break dance, how to rhyme, or none of that. They was just fine. They was getting a man. In fact, I feel like they were preserving the culture in a way at a time when it was questionable here. You know what I'm saying? Like, they was really, and so, because we didn't want to come over with that energy like we the Americans trying to show y'all. They got their own things, particularly, particularly in Palestine. Um, the Palestinians, man, uh, were the most beautiful people I've ever met. And we did a gig at Bethlehem University. And I remember... Uh, you know, they had the checkpoints. So picture this. Picture, let's say you live in Hyattsville and your man live in, uh, in, in, in Gaithersburg. But surrounding Hyattsville is a 20-foot wall surrounding the entire Hyattsville. And the people who live in there can't get out. Can't, they can't leave it. They can't come and go as they please. So when we went to Bethlehem to do the gig in Bethlehem at Bethlehem University, now you got Jerusalem over here, you got all the, you know, biblical monuments and the old city and stuff, and you got Bethlehem right over here. I mean, it's like, it's like if you're on Rhode Island Avenue at Home Depot, like Bethlehem is like Hyattsville, that kind of thing. And um, we did the gig. And after the gig, you know, the people was like taking pictures and stuff. And then they say, uh, and I said, well, you know, tonight we playing right over in East Jerusalem. You know what I mean? Come on over there. Right. They was like, we can't come over there. And I was like, it's right there. I'm looking at it. And they was like, we can't come over there, man. And, and you know what, man, that thing tore me up, man, tore me up. And shortly after we left and came back to the States, uh, they had tanks and stuff rolling over houses, man. And uh, so it was, it was, it was very, that was a trip, you know what I mean? Like dealing with, you know, meeting those people there, uh, meeting the people in Cairo, uh, meeting, you know, meeting Nubians, meeting Nubians for the first time, you know what I mean? And someone looking at you and acknowledging like we're cousins. It was, it was deep, man. And then when we went the next year, when we went to China and Mongolia and, uh, and Russia, well, you know me, I was all about, let's, let's hurry up, let's get it popping, let's go to Beijing and let's get this training going, let's get it cracking. I, I, I do Mongolia and Russia, let's get that out of the way, but I'm here for China for real. And let me tell you what, the story wasn't, Mon wasn't China or Russia, the story was Mongolia. That was the story for me, for me. Uh, I met, I just, it was just like, um, I, there was no frame of reference. You can, I can get up from where I'm sitting right now if my passport good and, 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 and go to Paris from right where I'm sitting, take the green line 
to, you know, LaFont, take the, you know, all the trains I got to take to get to Dulles. I can hit the ground running. But I had no frame of reference uh, in places like Mongolia. No frame of reference, right? And Russia, I ain't like it. I ain't, I ain't going, I can't put it no other way. They was, they was calling us all kind of niggas, and I ain't like it. You know what I mean? They was calling us. I mean, they, they gave us a briefing at the State Department. They said, you know, they said, now, there's a term called Niagara, which that means just like black person. But they said, but if they call you Chorney, if they call you Chorney, yeah, they calling you a nigga, right? And I was like, oh, okay. And look, but we got there. The first thing I heard was nigga go home. I was like, man, I know. Yeah, yeah, come on, man. I know what y'all saying. And, and they was calling us all kind of Chorneys and stuff. I was like, yeah, you know what? You ain't got to worry about me over this joint no more, you know. But it was experience, so, you know, it's all good. It yeah. was experience. Wow, man. Woo. So, it was, a, it was a very emotional, very, very emotional trip. Very, very emotional trip, man. Oh, that's an understatement, bro. That's an yeah. understatement. I mean, there was, there, it, it was, it was things that you wouldn't, we got more, I know personally, I got more than I expected. And, 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 and as you said, it's like a cocktail of emotions and 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 really man when i came back home i needed like a week or two to just not go outside to just to just process because you figure if for five days i'm in jordan and then five days i'm in israel and five days i'm in cairo and you know what i mean and now i'm in bahrain you know I, let me tell you you know i got home and one 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 afternoon, I took a nap, and I was at home, back home, right? And I jumped up, man, and I was confused. It was like, I was like, where am I at? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And then uh, for uh, a number of uh, years, well, when I got my new crib, the way I decorated my place, you if you travel like that, what, what starts to happen is I my place start looking like a hotel room, man. <laughs> like my my sense of decorating started. I was I walked in the house one day and I was like, man, this junk look like a hotel, man. It's because I've been in hotels all for the last three years, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was it. But but here's the thing is that so when I have conversations with people who want to talk to me about you know politics in other countries and all of that, you know, and I can tell I can tell from just. It don't take me long to tell that they talking out the side of their neck. You know what I mean? Because I've been there. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, next question, man, for, for you. And, and my apologies if I get the name of this wrong. Because I was trying to pronounce it. I should have hit you up before I did this episode. <laughs> uh, but you had a project. Um, uh, and it, it's got a lot of love for, 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 for your project. Uh, it was a group. I think was, I want to say... Ty, Ty Labu? Am I saying that right? Oh, Thalo oh, Blue. Thalo Blue, Thalo okay. Blue. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah Thalo. Yeah. Got you. So, so uh, yeah, yeah, Thalo Blue, man. That's, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, what do you want to know about that? <laughs> <laughs> Everything, man. How did it come about? The All whole right. concept, the whole concept behind it? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I got my eye on the clock, so I'm going to be succinct about it. So, um, I'm, I'm going to tell you this first. Um, so there's a man named Eric Alexander, who, um, when I was eight, I mean eight, when I was eleven, uh, he was my next door neighbor over in uh, over in Wingate. He had a rock band. 
it was him. He played guitar. He had a bass player and a drummer. The first rock and roll band I saw out of my eyes in person was Black Men. And they were on the patio having full-on concerts. I used to go to their rehearsals. I used to carry equipment for them. I was too young to go to gigs, but I would carry equipment for him. And he would give me records. He said, here's Jimi Hendrix. Go home, listen to this. And when you bring it back, I gave you another record to listen to. And we did this. This went on for a while. I love Eric. He's like a big brother to me. Um, about a few years, in, around about 97, nah, around about 2004, something like that. Um, or really when Opus was still together, I was writing songs that I knew weren't Opus songs. I still was really very much both feet in with Opus, but I'm just saying I was having other ideas and I knew that they weren't just, it just wasn't an Opus thing and they were like coming out like rock and roll things. But I couldn't play an instrument. And so in, and in 2008, you know, we Opus disbanded and uh, for about a year, I, I didn't. I was kind of like not knowing what I wanted to do. I, I, I really didn't know. Um, but I started, you know, I picked up an instrument and I tried to figure out what instrument I wanted to play. It turned out to be a baritone uh, guitar. And um, and then Ezra, here he comes again. Um, uh, he started kind of coaching me up on. He could hear what aesthetic I was looking for, sound wise. And then I hit up my man DP from Pro MCs. He came over to the house one day. I heard he was playing guitar. When I started kind of telling him, giving him an idea where my head was at, he was able to go to that place without a lot of effort. So I was like, okay, we on the same page. We, we kind of here. D Salam was a DJ and a engineer and a producer who we've all known each other for over 20 years. So we were recording Opus stuff at Urban Intellect Studio with, with D Salon, with, with Bill Vaughn. So he came into the picture because he was playing bass. And then we got a drummer. And so then we started getting some songs together, man, and the music started to gel. And, uh, you know, my feeling is being from D.C., we so rich with the musical history. You know, we bases from Fort, Fort Davis, you know, uh, uh, over, you know, I can walk there from here. And so I know we stand on the shoulder of rock and roll giants in this town. We got a renowned go-go history. We got a renowned hardcore punk history. We got a really, and we got some monsters in terms of MCs. I was just I was just at um at, at Bad Humans thing this weekend. I wish I could have stayed longer because after I left, all my all my all my folks came. So 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 you know, we did our first gig. Actually, your man Rock Creek Lee, he was running Ross Hall. We did the first Thalo Blue show there. I was playing my heart out, but it was dark, so I was wrong. <laughs> um, but at any rate, so Thalo man is just in my and. For me, it's just like another mode of expression for me. You know, like I got bars I'm working on. I'm doing some stuff with uh, with uh, with HL and with uh, and with, with, with my team demo people and stuff and, and, and with um and SP methods. Any for real, anybody that's got some beats and don't mind the old dog rhyming on a joint. Um, 
I got Phalo stuff I'm writing. I just don't have no limitations. You know, I'm going to live this life. I'm going to play this hand to a bust. You know what I'm saying? And however it come out, it come out. You know what I mean? Nobody going to box me. I box my, I do, I, I've done a good enough job of boxing myself over the years. So no, you know, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's like, however the thing come out, it might come out like a sculpture. It might be a paint. It might be a film. It might be a rock and roll tune. It might be a rhyme, you know. Maybe I can express it best with my straight sword. <laughs> you know. Um, man, thank you so much for this awesome episode, man. I feel like you, this episode did not disappoint. I feel like I chose the right people for this series, and you definitely gave me an awesome story, and everybody watching tonight, man. Um, is, there, is there anything you want to say to everybody watching? Any last words you want to get to everybody watching that may be watching in the future too tonight? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I want to thank you, man, because your research shows, man, and, and it really, you know, I mean, it felt like we only talked for 20 minutes. Like, I really appreciate the energy you put into it. So so definitely props to you for that. Um, thank you. Uh, if you go down, if, I, I would like to mention, if you go down to the uh, the newly remodeled um, Martin Luther King Library, go on the fourth floor. On one side, they got a history of uh, Go-Go. And on the other side, they got a history of, of, of punk, DIY, rock and roll music. And Phalo Blue, I'm so grateful, man, that all I wanted us to be is a part of that conversation, not like he, whatever, whatever. But we're in that, we're on that, like on that video loop of bands, they do a timeline thing. And we're, and we're, uh, and we're included in that, man. And that means the world to me, man. That means the world to me. Um, uh, all I would ask to say is just stay tuned for some more Sub Z stuff. I'm doing some recording uh, of some stuff, you know, uh, 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 and I'm going to write what I'm going to write and I'm going to say what I'm going to say. I don't have to compete with nobody, you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, you know, other than that, like, uh, you know, I teach a Friday night chi gun class on Zoom. Anybody can message me on Sub.Z Lyrics and I can tell you more about that. I'm still teaching Tai Chi and Kung Fu. I don't compete no more. In 2018, I got world champion in my event. So uh, I don't need to. I had, There's nobody else I really need to compete with. I compete with myself. Um, but other than that, man, um, no, nah, man, just in this joint raising this boy, man, trying to, you know, keep his ears tweaked to the right music. It seems like if anything I did right, or me, and, me and my wife did right, is tweak his ear to the to the right types of music. He, he, he you know, that's my boy, G. Wiz, Gabriel, but we call him G. Wiz. You know, so um, he like hanging around RBI. RBI is his man. <laughs> yeah. So, nah, man, just big, big love and respect, man, to all the hip hop community, past, present, and future in DC, man. Y'all guys keep, y'all guys inspire me so much to cast us out here now. God, ha uh, what is it? God hates Gucci and my man, um, YU and all. I mean, I ain't gonna get into that name thing because you cats are monsters. <laughs> Uh, 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 prowess, forget about it. Prowess, forget about it. Hey, she so, was a big help. Uh, she, she, hey, she's kind of my cheat sheet uh, for for your interview, man. <laughs> really, she, really, yeah, really? yeah, yeah. She, wow. She's a huge conduit oh, for, for me, man. Yeah, huge conduit. Yeah. Woo-wee. So I'm just, I'm just glad that you pull a little, little, little guy, little guy like me out of the woodwork, you know, to say a little something. I'm just grateful, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're grateful for you too, man. We, we, we're all grateful for you, man. Seriously, thank you. That's what's up. Yeah. That's what's up. That's what's up. Indeed, indeed. <laughs>
Good night, everybody. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. You take care, man. Be safe. Hey, you too, buddy. man. Well, hey, we'll, we'll definitely chill one day, man. We'll definitely get up Sunday, man. Get up soon. Let's do that. Let's do it. Please, that. please. All right. Good night, y'all.